Welcome to the Art of Charm podcast, where we break down the science of powerful communication and winning mindsets for the last 15 years so that you have the cheat code to succeed with people. This podcast is jam-packed with actual insights to unlock the hidden superpowers inside of you. That's right. We call that your X factor, and it's what makes you extraordinary. Level up each week by listening to interviews with the best in business, psychology, and relationships. In fact, we distill thousands of hours of research into the most effective tools and the latest science so you can start winning today. Let's face it, in order to be seen and heard, your communication needs to cut through the noise, and we're going to show you how. Let us introduce ourselves. I'm AJ, a recovering introvert, cancer biologist, self-development junkie, and co-founder of The Art of Charm. And I'm Johnny Zubak, former touring musician, venue manager, rock and roller, and co-founder of The Art of Charm. And for the last 15 years, we've trained thousands of top performers and teams from every background. We've dedicated our lives to teaching men and women elite communication, networking, and connection skills, and our world-famous training programs. That's right, everything from these shows is packed into our in-person online training programs. Ask us how. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. Now let's kick off today's episode. We are joined by none other than Natalie Kogan. Do you find yourself stuck in the I'll be happy win trap? You know, that hamster wheel that many of us know that makes us believe that big achievements or life changes are going to bring us lasting happiness. Well, that's what our guest today is all about. We're talking with Natalie Kogan, the CEO and founder of Happier Inc. and the author of Happier Now, How to Stop Chasing Perfection and Embrace Everyday Moments. Now, in her latest book, The Awesome Human Project, Break Free from Daily Burnout, Struggle Less, and Thrive More in Work and Life, she talks to all of us who are feeling overwhelmed by work, relationships, and responsibilities. You might be struggling with inner doubt or the fear of burning out, and we're going to help you self-diagnose and overcome those challenges today. In fact, we're going to talk about how to edit those thoughts to make them more impactful in your life, and we can't wait to show you how. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Thank you. I'm excited to connect with you guys and talk about it and all things Awesome Human Project and more. Absolutely. And we started your book with a story that I think a lot of our audience can resonate with. And I, I'd love to hear a bit of your origin story. You, you start with the idea that struggle was your religion. And I know many in our audience feel like trying to become a top performer is an endless struggle. Yes, and that it's the, the way to be. Yes, absolutely. So I, um, just for background for everyone listening, I grew up in Russia. I came to the U.S. as a refugee when I was a teenager. So I'm a Russian Jew, which I feel like the official religion of all Russian Jews is struggle. I mean, have you ever met a happy Russian person? I hadn't. And more than that, you know, my mother is a pianist. My father is a scientist. And like, I just grew up with this idea that anything good has got to come out of struggle. Like my mom would tell me like, you know, the greatest composers, the greatest artists, like they are so good because they struggle. So I like took that all the way in. Then I get here as a refugee. That's a lot of struggle. I mean, I just want everyone to imagine I'm 13 years old. I don't speak English. Whatever I do say comes out with a ridiculous accent. Everyone's making fun of me. I definitely don't look very cool. So I was like, oh, see, life, struggle. And so I really like it became like this thing I really believed in. And, you know, over the next 20 years, I worked really hard and I built a really successful career and I started companies. But I always struggled because I, I didn't think there was any other way. In fact, I thought that was the right way. You know, and I spent 20 years in technology startups, right? And it was just like saying like, the struggle is real, man. And so I was like, yeah, the struggle is real. And like, there was this worship of struggle. So I was like, 
oh my God, I'm really overachieving at struggle. Like I sleep four hours a night. I'm always like overwhelmed with self-doubt and exhaustion, but like I'm doing it the right way. So I'm listening to myself talk and I'm like, this is an interesting story of someone who teaches emotional fitness for a living, but it's the truth. I never imagined I'd be here. And the way the origin story actually gets me to do what I do is uh, several years ago, I suffered a really, really debilitating burnout. In fact, I, I think it was more than a burnout. The best expression I've come up with is a breakdown of being. I just stopped being. I, it was the scariest thing I've ever been through. I couldn't function. I was a kind of a shadow of myself. And it's really scary. I was, I was a CEO of a company called Happier, right? Helping hundreds of thousands of people live happier, but I could hardly function. I, I was blacking out. I hadn't, was, wasn't speaking to my husband of 20 years. I didn't know which end was up as a mom. And, you know, it's all really hard to say, but I think it's really important to share. And as scary as it was, in a way, it was a blessing because for the first time in my life, I stopped. And I had to find a different way because the struggle religion wasn't working. And I did a ton of research and explored a lot of Eastern and traditions and just to figure out how to live and work in a different way. And eventually realized, hold on, these things I'm doing for myself, they can help a lot of people. And here I am. Now, that absolute shutdown is, I'm sure, what a lot in our audience would love to avoid. What were some of the earlier signs of burnout in your life? So it's a great question. And I just want to be honest in saying there were many signs and I ignored them all. Like, I, I don't want to, like, I had no, the skill, one of the core skills that I teach now is emotional awareness. And I had none. I mean, I lived from my neck up, you know, again, like the, the intelligentsia, like, you know, it doesn't matter what you feel, who cares? Like, I'm not even sure I knew a lot of words for feelings in, in Russian. So I had, there were many signs, but I never took them as signs because that was struggle and struggle was the right way. So some of the signs were, I'm a really great speaker. I now speak for a living. It's something I really love to do. And I started to like not feel good in presentations to like investors or my team. I started to like forget what I was talking about. You'd think this would, you know, light bulb. But for me, it was like, wow, I'm struggling a lot. I must be doing it right. The biggest, I think, signs were, uh, the biggest one sign is just dread. I just began to dread everything. I opened my eyes in the morning after my, you know, maximum four hours of sleep because that's what, you know, super women do, right? Like if you're, you know, an entrepreneur, that's what you're supposed to do. But also I just couldn't sleep more than four hours with all the stuff going on. I'd open my eyes and I would just feel this heavy dread. And all I wanted was just to like not do the things. You know, and resenting your work is one of the top signs of burnout. Again, at the time, I was like, wow, this just means I'm working a lot. Look how great I'm doing. Um, so that was a huge sign, just that feeling of dread of everything, including things I used to enjoy. But again, at the time, I didn't take it as a sign of burnout. I took it as a sign of fantastic struggle. I think this is an important thing to discuss as more and more people take on and entrepreneurial roles in their lives. The idea of a side hustle is becoming very popular now. And so people are trying to get things moving on the side. Some of us have jumped right into entrepreneurship and we are going to rationalize a lot of our emotional uh, issues and mental 
physical issues that are going to come up from all of this struggle. We're going to rationalize it in one way or another in order to deal with it and keep plugging on. Now, is, is, is there anything that you can speak to of what those rationalizations look like and know when you're bullshitting yourself so that you can take care of yourself? Well, I'm so excited I get to say bullshit on the show. I, I should have asked. I usually ask because, you know, I do a ton of speaking and there's like no, you know, no word, no, no bad words on stage. So <laughs> this is uh, good. I love your question because that's what I was doing. I was bullshitting myself the whole time. And I wasn't, I was bullshitting myself because my bullshit story was it doesn't matter how I feel as long as I care about my team and I care about the vision and I care about creating a product that people love. You know, I took this idea of servant leadership to mean martyr leadership, right? Like I was serving my team and every day I was helping hundreds of thousands of people. So like I was bullshitting myself that it didn't matter how I felt. And that's the biggest lie that we as entrepreneurs and as leaders tell ourselves that how we feel does not impact one, our ability to actually make the right decisions. You know, when you're constantly exhausted and stressed out, your brain starts to interpret that you're in danger. We can handle as human beings short periods of stress. We're actually very good at short-term stress. If you're under chronic stress, your brain says, uh-oh, I am in danger. And when your brain senses danger, it goes into, we all know this, fight or flight. Well, you may not know about fight or flight. When you're in fight or flight, the brain says, okay, I only want to focus on the most important things that help me stay safe. So things that go out the door are analytical thinking, being able to consider multiple points of view, being able to consider alternative paths. These are all essential things for anyone having a side hustle or running a company. Like these are the most important things. When you are under chronic stress, your brain considers those luxury. It's a waste of resources. You know, it's really good when you're, what your brain does it narrows your vision literally and figuratively like your field of narrow. Uh, your thighs get really strong because your brain is literally getting you ready to run. And so I say all this because this whole idea, like the biggest bullshit is it doesn't matter how I feel. Like you said, I can just keep plugging through. Yeah, you can keep plugging through, but you can't do great work. You can't make good decisions and you definitely can't build a great business. And to me, this, this is the wake up call that I want to be, you know, and I speak to a ton of entrepreneurs. And when I started sharing my story, I can't tell you how many people came to me who were like with the quiet, the shh, like nobody knows, but I am where you were. So this idea that somehow our well-being, our energy level is separate from what we can output, it's just the biggest bullshit. This is why to me, you know, one of the missions I'm on is, you know, that we have in this culture, like this idea of like, oh, you're such a, she's such a superwoman, like, oh, he's a superhero. Being human is hard enough. Let's take off the cape. Because if we acknowledge that I'm a human being, I have a limited amount of emotional, mental, and physical energy every day. Everything I do needs energy. So if I am on empty, I actually can't do the things that I need to do. And for me, you know, at Happier and a few other companies I've run, I raised money for them, I hired a team, right? These are all things that entrepreneurs we know are essential, right? You need capital, you need a team, you need product. Well, your energy level is that essential, right? It's like people tell me like, oh, I have 12 months of runway, you know, cash for my business. And I say, how much energy runway do you have? And they're like, what, who cares? 
that's actually more important. So it's a great question because that's the biggest lie that I told myself and that we tell ourselves is somehow we have unlimited energy to keep plugging away. We can keep plugging away, but no one builds a great business by plugging away. It's so true. And I was listening to another podcast you were on on my flight to Vegas last week. And what do they say when you're on the plane, right? Put your oxygen mask on first before you help anyone else. But often as entrepreneurs and leaders, we're not even thinking about our own oxygen. We're running around the plane trying to get everyone else masked and trying to get everyone else moving in the right direction. And usually it's the people closest to us who aren't involved in the venture, who aren't involved in the business, who see these signs, see us not sleeping, see us popping up in the middle of the night and feel the grumpiness, the lack of energy and emotion expressed in our relationships. And I know you talked about that in the book, how it had an impact in your marriage, in the way you were showing up for your kids. A huge impact. And again, this is something that's really painful to say, but I think it's really important to share. I lived under this like lie that it didn't matter how much darkness I felt or exhaustion or self-doubt, that it wasn't affecting anything. It was affecting everything, right? My husband and I have been together. We met in college. We're like a really old married couple, but it spilled into everything. And I'm not blaming myself. I, you know, I, I say this with a tremendous amount of compassion, but when I am on empty, I'm snappy. I have no patience. I expect only perfection. I know listeners are nodding right now because I know I'm not alone. I work with a lot of leaders, right? And it's normal. Like I, you don't have anything to give. You can't give what you don't have. And so I didn't have anything to give to, to my husband and it, our marriage separate. I didn't have a lot to give to my daughter, not for lack of love, right? This is the thing I say to leaders and entrepreneurs. Like it doesn't matter how much you care about people in your life or people at work, or it actually doesn't matter. If, you're, if you don't have anything to give, you actually can't give. So it had a huge impact on my close relationships, on my close relationships at work. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, do I wish I caught some, you know, do I wish I had a moment of clarity at one point and been like, oh, wait, hold on, this is impacting everything. I do, but, you know, our brain loves inertia. This is one of the things I write so much about in my book of how we have to talk back to our brain I was in this inertia, as I said, like, I thought that was the right way. Like, I just assumed everyone did it that way. I didn't think there was a choice. Like, my choice was I either succeed and I achieve a lot of things and I build a successful company, like I honor this American dream, or I take care of myself and I take care of my well-being. And that was in my mind for lazy people. Like, I saw well-being and success as a choice but it isn't. Well-being is a non-negotiable ingredient in success. So I just had it wrong. The book, define awesome human, because who doesn't want to be an awesome human? <laughs> no, it's a great point. You know, when we were working on the book, we had the content. Like I knew what I wanted to write, but we didn't have the title. And then my publisher was watching videos of me speak. And for years, I get on stage and I say, hello, awesome humans. And she was like, what do you mean by that? And I was like, well, I actually mean something really specific. I believe we all have an awesome human inside of ourselves. We all have this unique capacity to do something meaningful and good. Like, I don't know if you guys have heard of acorn theory, a lot of philosophers. I really believe in that. I believe we're each born with a destiny, a gift. And our life's work is to figure out what the heck that is and then work really hard to bring it out. That's the awesome part. But we're also human. That means we mess up and we can't do it perfectly. And it means we have to take care of our energy reservoir and we actually have to 
do work with our thoughts, to kind of shift them to be more productive. So we're awesome and we're human. We're awesome humans. A lot of what's glorified in popular culture, not only with the hustling, is just the effortlessness of which success comes to a select few. And we don't often hear about the trials and tribulations and the toll success has on friends, family, relationships, etc. And when I think about an awesome human, I think a lot about the human part, and that's left out of these awesome stories of success. And it's very easy to see someone else look up to them and not realize that they're making the same mistakes. They started right where you started, and they're going to keep making those mistakes. And one of the biggest things that I took away from the book is how you talk to yourself and rewriting and editing that conversation. Because many of us have a one-way conversation. We just listen to all those thoughts and they take over our body and our emotions and our actions. And all of a sudden, we're off the road, we're burning out. So what do you mean by editing those thoughts and, and changing the way that we talk to ourselves? Yeah, I think that's probably the core. If I had to pick, there's many core themes in the book, but it's it perhaps for me was the core kind of mindset shift is the recognition that your brain does like the thoughts your brain gives you are not accurate representation of objective reality. They're not. It's just not the, the, the case. Our brain has a lot of filters, right? Our thoughts are filtered by things like we all have a negativity bias. We're all much more sensitive to anything that's wrong because anything that's wrong signifies possible danger. Your brain, I like that this is like a great reminder. Your brain doesn't care about your success, your achievement, or your happiness. Your brain just wants to keep you safe. That's it. So your brain is here to help you survive. And so it's got this negativity bias. So you, we overblow everything that's wrong or could be wrong. And we ignore a lot of good stuff, which increases stress. Your brain has a filter of uh, a fear, right? So if anything is uncertain, your brain hates uncertainty. We humans would prefer severe physical pain than uncertainty. They've done a lot of research. So your brain starts to make up a lot of worst case scenarios. Again, not objective reality. Your brain has a filter of it loves patterns. So if something happened before, when any similar situation comes up, your brain's like, oh, oh, I know, I know, this is how it's gonna be. I can get confirmation bias much more. So the biggest recognition is you are the editor of your thoughts. So the way that I think about it, your brain gives you a thought and you say, thank you for your input. And then you edit your thoughts and you ask these two questions. And I can honestly tell you this is at the core of what helped me really shift. The first question is, is this thought true? Because a lot of these thoughts are just not, and are not rooted in reality. For something to be true, you need to have facts to support it. So as an entrepreneur, you know, I've, I've run several companies. I mean, the stress that we feel as entrepreneurs and as leaders, it's nonstop, right? So what I remember, I would just obsess about like, oh my God, what if this, this product is not gonna work? This release is not gonna work. What if it doesn't? Like those thoughts aren't free. They drain my energy. They prevent me from making good decisions. So ask yourself, is this thought true? Like, how do I know the product is not good? How do I know my presentation won't go well, right? So for something to be true, you need facts. And the second question is perhaps even the more important, is this thought helpful? If I go along with this thought, does it help me work through whatever the situation in the best way? Does it help me struggle less so I waste less energy? Does it help me honor this moment in the best way? Does it help me serve whoever I'm in service of in the best way? So these two questions, is this thought true? And is this thought helpful? They're really life-changing in terms of, first of all, you just start to 
not take so much of the bullshit that your brain feeds and you're constantly filtering, but it allows you to make better decisions, both about your own energy and well-being, but also about whatever it is you're building. You can make them from a place of clarity. This is how it is versus from a place of fear or fear of uncertainty or all these different filters that the brain has. AJ, we absolutely love our sponsor, Kajabi, because it's the magic behind our coaching programs. As a creator, you work hard on creating your content, so don't leave it up to an algorithm to determine how successful your online business is. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform, so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. All of our coaching programs run on Kajabi, including our famous X-Factor Accelerator. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't take a cut of your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So you keep 100% of everything that you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make a sustainable income. There are thousands of entrepreneurs on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we are driven by the search for better. In fact, if you listen to the show, we know that you are driven. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with 350 million global monthly visitors. According to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with better candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. AJ, we have certainly hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years, and it can certainly be a daunting process. Sorting through endless resumes, trying to find the best candidates can drive anyone crazy. Finding the perfect candidate has always been so time consuming. And that's exactly why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great candidates fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I think it's incredibly important to have this dialogue with yourself and challenge yourself, but also allow these thoughts to come out so you, and, and write them down so you can actually see how ridiculous a lot of this stuff actually <laughs> yeah. is. If, if you allow it to, 
to to continue to to, to get out of hand and you feed those thoughts and you me- mentioned one of our need for survival and our and our how our brain is interpreting everything in flat and then you throw in our biological need to procreate on top of the the survival mechanism and we have all kind of firing of our brain with all kind of bizarre thoughts and the rationalizations and the mental gymnastics that we come up with because of both of those biological needs it's crazy and i think for a lot of people they have to be able to surrender to the idea that your brain uh though incredible as it is for everything that it is able to do uh it's without guidance it's it it'll wildly go off the reservation one of my favorite quotes and i don't actually i it was in my first book and i we didn't come up with the actual source it's conflicted but one of my favorite quotes is your brain is a terrible master but your brain is an awesome servant. And awesome is definitely my substitution. I think it's great. So I'm just using awesome. But your brain is a terrible master, but a great servant. And it's exactly what we're talking about. So if you just, and I love that you said about writing things down. You know, there's a great author, Michael Singer, his book, The Untethered Soul and Surrender Experiments are two of my favorites. And he has this thing where he's like, I realized there's a crazy roommate in my head. And he's like, I started writing down the stuff that he says. And I was like, oh my God, if this person lived with me, I'd kick them out. And yet they're in my head. And you know, it's like completely crazy. And so I think it is important, like do this practice. I, I did this when I was starting to practice this early on, I would just write down everything I'm thinking about. And I would look at it and be like, wow, really crazy. But to your point, just to recognize that your brain, the the analogy I use in, in my work is your brain is a really scared child. And to me, that really, really helps. And for everyone listening, you don't have to have your own kids. We all know what little kids are like, right? They, one minute they're happy, the next minute they're yelling, the next it's a tantrum, they're completely illogical. Everything is the biggest deal, right? So your brain is a scared child. And you, the greater, wiser you, be the grandparent. Because we all have like, the grandparent, they're wiser, they're calmer, but they're warm, right? One of the things that I don't advise is don't yell at your brain. Don't get mad at your brain. It's part of you. Be the grandparent. What does a grandparent do when the kid's freaking out? Well, they sort of sit on the floor with them. You know, Johnny, to your point, they acknowledge, they're like, Okay, so you spilled your cereal and you think it's the worst thing in the world and there'll never be cereal again. I understand that's upsetting, but let's think about it. Could we get more cereal? Is it really true that there's no more cereal, right? So to me, that's the analogy. And also because I think a really important quality, and this is something I also talk a lot about, is compassion self-compassion, which then goes, so have self-compassion, like don't pummel yourself for having these ridiculous thoughts. You're human. That's your brain. Have compassion in this practice of being the grandparent and editing your thoughts. So they're more helpful so you can move forward. And when I was younger, it was, I, for all the negative talk that I would have when my inner critic would speak up, I would always rationalize it as, well, it's my thoughts. So there's got to be something there. There's got to be some kernel of truth that is where this is originating. 
And, and I allowed that to happen. And of course, as I had gotten older and began doing research on this very topic, I realized that's just not the case at all. And again, that was me bullshitting myself in order to protect these thoughts because my brain was trying to protect me from putting myself outside of my comfort zone where all the bad things happen. But as we all grow up and know, it's where all the good stuff is. That's right. I just want to actually say one thing to what you said. Those thoughts sometimes do have a seed that could be helpful to us, right? But it's about removing that judgment, the pummeling, and getting to the seed, right? So, you know, if you're working on launching a product or a company or a side hustle and you're lost in a lot of self-doubt, this is something I do a lot of work with because, again, I'm a Russian Jew. I think, like, we have a black belt in doubt, you know? Like, in my family, it's really not cool to feel confident about anything because then you're going to curse it, you know, that's a whole thing. So self-doubt is a thing. So I, I do, I've done a lot of work on self-doubt. And so, you know, for example, let's say, you know, you want to start a company or launch a product and you're like, oh my God, what if it doesn't work? I'm not good enough, right? So what could be the seed there? Well, this, if you edit your thoughts, you realize, well, the truth is I'm, I'm scared. My brain is scared of what others will think of disappointing others. And then there's a helpful action in that. You could be like, all right, well, let me do a little more research on the market, or let me talk to some more successful entrepreneurs, or let me remind my brain that, you know what? I might fail. That is a possibility, but I know how to deal with disappointment. I've done these things, hard things before. And so there might be a seed there, but that's what we're doing when we're editing. We're getting to that useful part and we're putting away all that other crap that the only thing it does, it drains our energy, prevents us from making good decisions, and often creates that mental block that we actually, as you said, don't do the thing that is on the other side of comfort. Well, you have brought up this idea of editing our thoughts a few times now, so we might as well go ahead and lay that out for our audience so they can be in tune to what we're doing here. I, I shared the two questions at the core of it, right? So is this thought true? Is it helpful? And I guess the other thing I want to mention, as you just said it, like, that's why I got distracted, popped into my head. You know, often I hear from people when they do this practice, they're like, well, I think this thought is true, right? Like I work with a lot of leaders and companies and, you know, imposter syndrome comes up a lot, right? Oh, I've got this huge job, but everyone's about to find out that I'm not good enough for it, you know? And by the way, men and women, this idea that women have more imposter syndrome, I have now found it in my work. I work with a lot of male executives. I hear the same thing. And so I say to them, okay, well, let's edit your thoughts. Is this thought true? And they go, yes, I am convinced this is true. It is true. I know it's true. And so the reminder there is what you think other people think is not fact. That's another filter. That's another idea. And so the, when we do this practice of is this thought true, is this thought helpful, we actually, to use your expression, we have to drop our own bullshit in that. Because you can answer the question like, yes, this thought is true. Yes. It's helpful. So another one I just want to address is self-criticism. Again, this is, I grew up, you know, people in my family constantly criticize themselves and each other. I thought it was the only way to improve. A lot of people think that. Just for fun, there are zero studies that show that endless self-criticism helps you improve. Not one, not two, zero. But there are tons of studies that show that treating yourself with compassion actually helps you to work harder and improve. What is treating yourself with compassion? It's not saying to yourself, you know what? I am great the way I am and I never have to change and everything is amazing. No, that's what I thought it was. Like I thought it would make me this lazy sloth. 
Treating yourself with compassion back to where we started this conversation means you recognize, oh, I'm a human being. That means I mess up. That means I can't do things perfectly. How can I treat myself in this challenging situation in a way that reduces struggle and suffering? Because guess what? When I reduce my struggle and suffering, I have more energy, more intellectual and analytical capacity to actually figure out how to move forward. I have more motivation. And so again, I mentioned these parts of editing your thoughts because it's very easy to do that practice and sort of bullshit your way through it and then be like, yes, Natalie, actually, this thought is helpful. Thinking that I'm fat and ugly and unsuccessful and I should be further along with my career and I'm a failure, it is helpful because it motivates me. And so we have to kind of challenge ourselves on that too to get to the seed because that is not what motivates us. Endless self-criticism is not what motivates us. Well, I love those examples because they're relatable to everyone. And this truth one we use this exercise with our clients in X-Factor Accelerator is, would that hold up in a court of law? So if you're on the testing, if you were giving testimony, you're on the stand, the witness stand, and you said that in a court of law that you could read people's minds and you knew what they were thinking, you'd be laughed out of the courtroom. So for us, the truth is, would a judge, would a jury actually agree with what it is that you're saying? Because so often as leaders, we are headstrong. We are confident in our thoughts and views, so confident that we will fall into these cognitive biases where we're reading people's minds. It's black and white. There's no gray. And unfortunately, that does not help us. And it doesn't help us serve either. I think it's such a great point. One of the qualities that I didn't realize it would take to actually break through all this, but humility. It's, a, it's not assuming that I know what everyone else thinks. And I had to face that head on and it was very painful because boy, my ego did not like that because come on, of course you know what everybody thinks, look how smart you are. But it's actually one of the best ways that I've found to bust through imposter syndrome. You know, I was working with this leader who just got a huge promotion in her company. It's a company we'd all know. She's second in command, a huge promotion. And she said to me, she was there for six months. She said, I think they're going to fire me. I think they're just going to figure out that. And I said, all right, let's just, you know, edit you. let's go through this. What are the facts? I said, take out a piece of paper, two columns. On one side, facts that support that they're going to fire you. I said, okay, let's go through it. Have you gotten negative feedback? No. Have you gotten a negative review? No. Has someone said something to you directly? No. Okay. What are the facts that counter this idea that you suck at your job? Have you gotten a positive review? Yes. Four. Uh, what was the outcome of your 360? Fantastic. Oh, and I got two raises. Oh, and then there was this letter forwarded to the board recommending me for this. And I was like, wow, let's look at those two columns. And then I had this moment. I said, okay, so here's where humility comes in. You and you, this is where you know calling your bullshit comes in. You either have to believe. I, I asked her, I said, Do you think everyone, like all your leadership, your bosses, are they stupid? She said, No, of course they're not. I really respect them. I said, Well, one of two things has to hold true they are stupid, therefore, all these positive reviews they're giving you are dumb, and all these promotions are dumb, or you're actually as good as they think you are. And it was this moment of humility because. The imposter syndrome comes from this place where we think we know better than other people. And so humility is a quality that actually helps us to bust through some of those lies that we're telling ourselves. I think a big part of that as well is we're wired for scarcity. And when you're getting a promotion, when you're getting awarded, all of a sudden you're in a place of abundance and your mind 
can't really wrap its head around it because it's built for survival. <laughs> it is built to hold on. And the fear of loss is far greater than what could be gained. So when you're in a situation of winning and succeeding, it's very easy for your mind to be like, okay, the other shoe's going to drop. Okay, they're going to find out. They're going to catch on. Something is going to put me back in scarcity. I have to be ready for it. It's a really good reminder. And the other part of what you said is so important is like just remembering what the brain cares about. Like that that insight to me when I got it was so powerful. Like my brain is not sitting around every day thinking like success or in service of others or, you know, becoming great at something. That is not what my brain is worried about. My brain just wants me to survive. That's it. And so uh, you know, we all have loss aversion, right? We've heard of it. Like, it's much harder for us to lose anything. We get much more sadness than if we gain something. We feel actually less happiness for that. It's because where we are now is familiar, and familiar is fantastic for survival because familiar means safe. And so anything new, anything uncertain, it's the worst case scenario for the brain because it doesn't know how to do its job of keeping you safe. And so it'll come up with anything, including self-doubt, including imposter syndrome, including all the other things we mentioned, just to keep you in the familiar, just because it's safe. And just understanding that, you know, I talk about thriving in my book and like my shorthand for myself is my brain is not here to help me thrive. It's here to help me survive. If I want to do anything beyond that, I have to bust through some of these thoughts. Now, self-doubt, unchecked self-doubt, and especially criticism leads to perfectionism and leads to, in the startup world, never launching, right? Never getting that product out. So what do you say to those in our audience who are struggling with perfectionism that's keeping them from even attempting the side hustle or from asking for that promotion, et cetera? It's a great question. And just for clarity, hello, I'm Natalie and I'm a recovering perfectionist. I just want to say that it's not like I got this down. You know, I, you know, I, the, my parents love to tell the story that in third grade, I think I would, you know, write in a notebook. And in Russia, the grading, like I was a math whiz, but if you made like a spelling error in your math notebook, you got points off. So if I made a spelling error, I would rewrite the entire notebook from the beginning, right? You're making the right faces. I just want everyone to know. So I'm a recovering perfectionist. So I feel like I have authority on the subject from doing it wrong the, you know, most of my life. So a couple of things. And again, let's just start with humility. Most people don't give a crap. This is like the biggest like liberation is just to realize nobody like... People aren't sitting out there and going, okay, okay, Natalie, let's see. Let's see. Let's see how your book launch goes. Are you going to screw it up? Are you going to screw it up? Oh, let me read your book. Let me see. Do I hate this book? Is this a... No one does that. Most of the time we're spending time worrying about ourselves. So that to me is just the first thing to recognize is the world is not sitting out there waiting to judge your performance. It's just not. We're all really more self-focused. The second thing, and this actually, you know, I'm also an artist. You're, you guys are looking at some of my art behind me. My art's on the cover of my book, which is a huge vulnerable moment for me. I'm coming out as an artist with this book. It's like really scary. What? She's an artist too? Oh my gosh, she can't paint. She's self-taught. What the heck? So I read this in a book. It's called um, Of Art and Fear. I highly recommend it. You don't have to be an artist. I think it's an amazing book for entrepreneurs. And these two authors in it, they write that your job is to work at your craft. So whatever it is, you're designing a product, you're building something, you're an artist, you're a writer, that's your job. Practice, 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 get better. The job of judging 
the outcome, that's not your job. That is somebody else's job. Do not take their job. And I think that's really powerful. And I have to remind myself of this all the time. And the third thing I'll say, and this for me is what I find the most helpful, is we have to shift the focus from I, 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 what if people don't like me? What if people don't like my product? What if people don't like my book? What if people think badly of me, me, me? That's our little egos going, me, 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 I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared. And we have to shift it outwards. And for me, the best way to do that is to practice the skill I call the bigger why. And that is to connect to why is it? What is my purpose for doing this? And we humans derive our sense of purpose when we connect what we are doing to how it helps others, how it contributes to someone other than us. And so instead of I, 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 oh my God, what if people don't like my book? What if they judge my book launch? I ask myself, how does this book help someone else? How can this serve someone else who is struggling, who is in trouble? And the moment that you say this, you, you shift into what's called a pro-social mindset, which gives you motivation, which reduces any of that anxiety about performance. And for me, that is the best way that I know how to bust through perfection. With all the technology that we have, everybody's a critic. And, and I, I remember even as of lately, uh, the first TikTok video that we made for the company and the first or the first comment that we got. And it was something about AJ's appearance because of the lighting. And, and it was enough, it was just enough to, to read that comment and go, what is the point of me even making this stupid video? And again, you have to figure out why are you doing it and who this is going to help. The other part of that is, for a lot of people, I always have to remind them that you're being critiqued by people who are afraid to take the risks that you are taking. Like, I'm happy to have this discussion about what I've done with somebody else in the arena. But if they're not in the arena, if they're not getting their ass kicked on a daily basis, why the hell am I going to listen to them? And then the other part of that is certainly when it comes to the internet of you don't even know who is making the comment and you really want to go there because when you do and you pull back that curtain and you see who's doing all the talking as you mentioned it's the the, the afraid child who's just there cowering and terrified of of life i love what you just brought up and i actually think it's such an important point that's the other filter that we have to remember right when people's judgment of us and our work or our appearance whatever very little to do with us and everything to do with their own experience it's their brain filter you know i had this experience that i want to share it's uh because it really stung at a moment it was a couple of years ago right when the pandemic broke out i started to do you know my speaking career went to zero right i used to get on stages so we were trying to figure out what to do. And I said, all right, I asked this question. I tried to practice what I teach. I was like, how can we help people? You know, it was all kinds of uncertainty. We thought it would last a couple of weeks. Ha ha. Funny in retrospect. So I started doing this live show, which I still do every Wednesday. Awesome human hour. Everyone's welcome. I do it at noon Eastern and I have guests and I talk about emotional fitness skills. It's now second year. But I started to invite people and interview them. And I, you guys are awesome interviewers. You do this a lot. I am a talker by nature. And I didn't have a lot of experience of interviewing people. I'm, exper I'm experienced at being interviewed. So I, it was like a couple shows in and I had someone on, I actually don't remember exactly who, and we were having this conversation. And you know, you can send comments 
just to that panelist. So we get the, I get, I see this comment pop up. It says, you probably need to stop talking so much and let the other person talk more. So I cannot tell, I mean, this took me for a spin. I was, I mean, I, you know, I think I spent like 10 hours that day, just like everyone. I texted my husband, like, oh my God, I suck at this. I'm the worst interviewer, you know, my colleague. And the couple of days later, uh, I get an email and it was this person that posted this comment and it was an apology. And the apology was that she realized I didn't say anything back, by the way, to the comment, um, but she said, you know, it, I've really, it's been hurting me that I did this. She said, I've realized that I have trouble speaking up and you are so strong and you are so strong. And uh, yeah, I was, you know, gently arguing with this person, you know, like we challenging each other. She said, I realized that that was so uncomfortable for me because it's not something I can do that I took it out on you by judging how much you were talking. And I just share this because it was a gift. It was a gift for me to see that. It doesn't mean I wasn't talking too much, by the way. That's a whole separate thing. Sometimes I really do go on and then I, I say to the guests, I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like, I just try to own it. But just in what we're talking about, her comment and criticism had much more, everything to do with her um, than it did to me. And it was a gift for me to actually witness that. So I think it's a really important reminder of what you brought up is we just have to, again, that's why I go to that comment in Art and Fear book. Like, it's just not our job because we don't know that those people, they have so much of their own struggle going on or their own challenges or their own life experiences. Just focus on what we're doing and why. Like, how does this actually help someone else? It really breaks through all of that chatter. Well, I want to make a couple points here. So number one, thank you both for illustrating our capacity for cognitive bias around negative thoughts and, and comments. So you remember the comment, Johnny, you remember the comment. We've got boatloads of positive feedback, boatloads of people saying you're amazing, you're awesome, you're doing great. But we as creators, we hold on to that negative. We are not immune just because we're here on video and, and on the microphone. So if you're listening and you're on the sidelines saying, man, I wish I could be like them and be so strong. You can. We are not stronger than you. We hold on to these negative thoughts and criticisms, but we still get in the arena. And that's such an important point to make. I feel like creating has made me a better communicator. It's allowed me to wrestle with these thoughts. It's allowed me to impact those in our audience who are also resonating with this. So if you're thinking about starting it, do it. There's no reason to hold back, even if you're afraid of the criticism that we have all weathered by putting this out there. The second thing that jumps out at me is for those of us who are in a place of, okay, I'm worried about this perfectionism. I'm worried about being perceived in the negative. If we're not practicing our craft, we can't get better. It's a part of the process. You know, you said, hey, we're great interviewers. Well, we've been doing this a long time. You can't get better on your first or second go. So those that you look up to who are mastering it, they're doing it, doing it and doing it and making the mistakes. It's a huge part of the learning process and curve for anything you want in life. And many in our audience right now are probably at a place of struggling to see how what they're doing is of service to others. And we've seen this with the great resignation. We've seen people through the pandemic now just throw their hands up and say, why am I doing this job? What am I getting out of this? What, who am I serving? And it's easy for us because we have an audience. We do see and hear the impact that we have on others. But for those who are listening, who are watching this, who can't quite find that bigger why and how they're making an impact and what they're doing, 
What do we have for them? How could we support them? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think one of the first things I want to say is, you know, when we talk about meaning, like I know for most of my life, I thought like there's this sense of purpose out there somewhere and I have to go find it, right? Many of us have probably read The Alchemist, right? The amazing book by Paolo Coelho, you know, where the boy goes on a pilgrimage to find a sense of purpose, right? So to me, what I've discovered, it's the opposite. Your sense of purpose is it's in the things that you do today. And so we have to actually practice asking the question, like, how does doing this help someone else? And sometimes, as you say, right, if you're working in a huge corporation, you, you know, you're not sure what the impact is, you have to dig harder. But I want to share one of my favorite studies, and it's in my book. I've read it a couple years ago. It stayed with me. I still think about it. So they were doing research at a hospital system on job satisfaction. And the researchers got interested in janitors, all right? So I am talking about janitors, people who are cleaning floors and taking out the garbage, like the least glory, like I bet most of your audience has a more interesting job than that. And so the researchers were like, well, how do these janitors get through their day? Like eight to 10 hours of this menial labor. So they started to do this research and they brought the janitors in one by one and they asked them one question, please tell me what you do for work. That's it. The janitors, and they have their job satisfaction scores, they have their salary histories, and so they picked janitors. Some had low job satisfaction, some had very high, but they all kind of made similar amount of money, so that wasn't a factor. So please tell me what you do for work. The janitors with the lowest job satisfaction scores said things like, I clean the floors, I take out the garbage, you know, I keep the, my floor responsibilities, I sweep. They focused on the what. The janitors with the highest job satisfaction said things like, I help patients get better. I help the families that come to visit feel a little bit better. Think about that. They were doing the same exact stuff. Stuff that, again, I don't know the audience, but I guarantee every single one of you listening has a more interesting job than that. But it is how they looked at it. So the janitors who focused on their meaning, they connected, how does taking out the garbage, how does keeping this room clean, how does it help someone else? Well, it helps the family feel a little more comfortable when they come. It helps the patient. The researchers found one more thing. The janitors who focused on their sense of meaning in their jobs with the high job satisfactions, they practiced what they called job crafting. They actually expanded the scope of their job because it gave them more meaning. One janitor was writing letters to a family of a comatose patient, just giving updates. And they asked him like, why are you doing this? You Like why? He said, well, makes me feel good. I'm helping them stay in touch with his condition. Another janitor phoned the family of a patient who couldn't talk, he was on a ventilator, to ask if he had any allergies because he said if he did, he would change the cleaning solution. So the, the researcher said like, was this in your job description? The janitor said, no, but I'm helping the patient heal, so I don't want to frustrate them with a the wrong cleaning solution. So that's the answer. The sense of meaning is not going to fall on you and hit you in the head and be like, oh, okay, my job is really meaningful. We have to dig for it, and we dig for it by asking these questions about the... Ta I, I did a workshop at a huge company a couple months ago, and I taught this practice. I call this a to-do list makeover, okay? So pick a couple to-dos on your to-do list. The more annoying, the better, and ask yourself... Who does this help? And actually answer. So I did this practice with this team and, you know, we did like a workshop. And at the end of two hours, I said, all right, I want to know how it went. And this woman raised her hand, you know, Zoom virtual hand. And she said, 
this is crazy, but let me tell you. She said, I run a team of product managers all over the country. And at the end of every week, we have to put this report together on the state of the product that I share with sales and marketing. She's like, I hate doing this because I have to nag my team all the time. Then I have to write it all up, but it's a Friday afternoon. She says, so I tried your thing. And I was like, oh, this was going to be such BS. And she said, okay, who does this report help? Like my doing this report, who does it help? She was like, well, actually it helps the client services team. They tell me all the time that they pull things out of it for their communications. Oh, and I think it helps the sales team because I remember they were talking about how they were highlighting upcoming. Oh, and the customer service people, I remember the head of customer service was telling me how helpful it was to find the bugs. She was like, you know what? She said, do I love doing this report? No, but do I feel totally different about it because I see the purpose? Yes, she's like, and actually I'm writing this whole email to my team about it, like she had this whole new lens. So I share this because that's the work. That's the work to find that sense of purpose and not to look for it in some grandiose way, but to look at it through the lens of these things that I am doing right now, who are they helping? And if we look hard enough, there is the answer. And then we do the job crafting, right? What can you add without the resigning from your job, without you know doing like huge life changes? Oh, so it gives you a lot of meaning when your reports are helpful to your colleagues. What are some other things you could do that would be helpful to your colleagues? I think this is all incredibly important. And I don't think culturally and where we're at right now, the world demands it from us. And that needs to be created on our own. And I, I know for myself, I have done this for every aspect of the way I live to say just the idea of making my bed in the morning. I'll give you a philosophical reason why I'm doing it. I'll give you a political reason why I'm doing it. I'll give you a psychological reason why I'm doing it. But for a lot of my friends, I'm going to just tell them that I like to make my bed in the morning because it makes me happy. Because if they hear any of these other stories, they're going to look at me as if there is something wrong. However, all those things combined give that practice an incredible meaning to me and it's not just making my bed it's part of a ritual that allows my whole day to come together and again to allow me to be at my best for the job that i'm going to do and also at your best as a human like, i think that's a really important component right it's at your best for the job but also, also i bet it makes you a more awesome pleasant human for your friends and colleagues and people in your life like that, that's the thing. It's worth doing those things and figuring out the meaning because it actually makes you better in every way, including your own experience with yourself, which is something we definitely don't talk enough about. I enjoy myself so much more now that I am honest with myself, that I recognize when I'm you know, doing stuff that causes me struggle, when I have some of these rituals that give me meaning, I enjoy my own company much more. And that's a really important relationship. And you started this conversation with the idea of happiness being a choice. This meaning is also a choice. And that study illustrates that. And that's so important because it allows you to take control back, right? It's not saying the world is out to get me or I'm the victim or all these forces are conspiring against me. It's making the choice to view things through a different lens or to even try to find a different lens. If the lens you have right now is not providing meaning, is not providing the happiness that you're looking for. And you've mentioned a few times during this interview, emotional fitness, and I'm sure our audience would be screaming at me if I didn't ask you to break that down for us because we're 
totally aware of health and fitness. We've talked about that on the show and mental fitness. We want to think about as we get older, but what do you mean by emotional fitness? And I know the book is loaded with practices that we can use to strengthen our emotional fitness. Yeah, it's a great question. So physical fitness is a great comp, right? We all know what it is, right? And we all know if you want to be more physically fit, what do you do? We all know you move a little more, you lift weights, you work out, you eat healthier, right? We also know that when you stop doing those things, your physical fitness goes away. So it's not like, okay, I've done these five things, that's it. That's why, you know, my least favorite thing in the world, why I have lots of those, but as I just heard my 17-year-old daughter be like, no, 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 you say least favorite thing all the time, but you know those like listicles, like do these five things and you'll feel great for the rest of your life. No, you will not because it's a practice. So emotional fitness is like physical fitness, but what you're training is your relationship with your brain, your thoughts, and your emotions. So my definition of emotional fitness, it's all about creating, it's a skill, again, practice, practice. It's a skill of creating a more supportive relationship with yourself, your thoughts, your emotions, and then with other people, but other people only come after yourself. And so there are these five core emotional fitness skills that I kind of researched and discovered for myself. And in the book, I take you on this five-week emotional fitness challenge. And super quick there, the first skill is acceptance. We talked about this. Editing your thoughts is part of that. It's, it's, it's not, you know, I used to think acceptance was like, however life is, it is, you know, I can't change anything. No, I was just ignorant. Acceptance, the way I define it, it's a skill of learning how to look at the situation you're in with clarity, as we talked about, versus judgment or buying into these various filters. And then from that point, AJ, to your point, saying to yourself, okay, this is how it is. What is one thing I could do to move forward with less struggle? The second skill is gratitude. Again, something that everyone usually nods around, like we know it's good for us, but it's all about practicing. And gratitude helps to balance that negativity bias that we've talked about, that fear of uncertainty. The third skill is self-care, and my definition of self-care I think is different from how we are all used to thinking about it. Self-care is a skill of fueling your emotional, mental, and physical energy. A car needs fuel to do its job of being a car. You, as a human, need energy to do your job of being human. And so I hope, you know, to take self-care out of like the realm of a luxury or a guilt. So acceptance, gratitude, self-care, intentional kindness is a fourth skill. We haven't talked about it a lot, but kindness and compassion towards others is absolutely essential for our emotional fitness. We are not here to be alone. Our brain, when we feel isolated, our brain interprets it as danger. So actively practicing kindness to nurture relationships with others is essential. And the fifth skill we talked about is the bigger why. Actively connecting what you're doing every day to how is it meaningful to you? What is the purpose? Which is actually one of the best ways, as we've talked about it, to bust through fear and limiting beliefs. So those are the five emotional fitness skills. And my big dream is that one day we can talk about like, oh, how was your workout today? Like, oh, how was your emotional fitness workout today? We elevate it to the same level of importance that our culture treats around physical fitness. Well, what I liked about these practices at the end of the book is just how simple they are to put into your everyday routine. It's not like physical fitness for some of us where we got to get in a car and go to the gym. We've got to find the weights and we got to make sure no one's on our equipment. It's not sweaty. These are things that you can do in your day, weave them into your routine and allow yourself an opportunity to really let this practice become second nature because it's easy when things are going terribly to reach for the gratitude and then struggle to find it and feel like, oh, but this is something that if it's done daily, if it's woven into right before you go to bed or right when you wake up, and we've been huge fans of the five minute journal for that reason, because it's a simple way to memorialize these practices and it's there 
on your nightstand when you wake up, when you go to bed, when all of us have to do on a daily basis. The other thing that strikes me is that that generosity and that kindness, right? When we think about job crafting, Johnny and I say this all the time, many of us might not be in a leadership role yet, but we can lead from the seat that we're in. You can still be kind to your coworkers. You can go that extra step to support the team. And if you start to do exactly what you said with that to-do list and think about the impact that it'll have by just going a little extra, that impact could help another team member reach their goal. And who knows, could turn around and open that door of opportunity for you. But it's so easy for many of us to be sitting frustrated where we are, not making the choice to look for the bigger why, and then to not go the extra mile, to pull back and to not be generous or kind with our thoughts, words, and actions. Well, you know, I want to, you brought up leadership, right? And people aren't in a leadership position. So I want to, there's a whole chapter on leadership in my book, which I didn't expect to be there, even though I work with leaders all the time. This wasn't just for leaders, but I realized that awesome humans are leaders because here's my definition of leadership. You are a leader if you positively impact other people's capacity to thrive. Nowhere in that definition is how many people you manage, where you are on the org chart, where your title is. We've all had bosses who are not leaders. We've all had managers who are not leaders. We've all worked with people who don't have anyone who reports to them and they positively impact us. So everyone can be a leader, but you have to prioritize positively impacting other people. You know, we talk about kindness. There's this idea in our culture of random acts of kindness. I ask people to practice intentional kindness. And the simplest way to practice kindness is to listen. This is actually a skill that I've been focused on for the last couple of years um, because I realized I really sucked at it. Listening is a huge act of kindness. And listening, you know, I talk about this in my book, it has two steps. We don't recognize that it does. First, you, you know, you like, let's say a colleague, you, you see something is off or, you know, they're acting kind of tense. You ask them how they're doing. This, and the second step is really important. You shut up. You know, listening doesn't mean you're fixing them, you're giving them advice. This is what I used to do. I used to be like the ultimate fixer. Like you tell me something that's wrong and I got 77 ideas for how you can fix it. That's all fantastic. But what we need as human beings before that is we need to be heard. We need to feel like it's okay to feel how we feel. We need to feel safe. And then we'd love the help and advice. And so intentional kindness does not require any kind of grandiose act. It means that you care. And as a leader, again, you prioritize caring. You genuinely are a good person. You know, I I uh, was listening, I don't know why, oh, because I, I was on Ken Blanchard's podcast, so I was listening to some of his talks, I'm a big fan of his, and he said, you know, I think great leaders are just ultimately good human beings, they just care about other people, and I think that's like, that's really right on, because if you care about positively impacting other people, you can find a bajillion ways to do that, that's a scientific term from a math whiz, my math PhD father approves of that. You can find ways to do that in your everyday life and work without having any fancy title. And that's what makes you a leader. And by the way, research shows when you do that consistently, actually, you do get into leadership positions because you start to naturally show that kind of leadership. And that janitor writing those update notes is a leader. Yes, absolutely. So it doesn't matter where you are on the hierarchy. I know many listening might not be where they want to be on that leadership ladder, but in Whatever seat you're in, having that intentional kindness and thinking about your teammates, showcasing that it is rewarded. It may not feel like it in the moment, but 
it's rewarding you emotionally, spiritually, and it's rewarding those around you to be supported in that way. And I think that's what makes a lot of these jobs so difficult is we don't feel supported. We don't feel a bigger why. We don't understand how it all fits together. And many leaders are only there to be the leader, to be at the top of the pyramid, and they're not paying attention to these things. So that's such a great definition. Thank you for sharing it with our audience. We love to end every episode with your X factor. So we started the show talking a little bit about what we would think an X factor is. So what is it that makes you extraordinary? I think what makes me extraordinary is my creativity. And I mean something really specific by that. It's not that I'm an artist, which I am. It's not that. It's that I have a creative approach to life. And that is that whatever the situation, I sort of just roll up my sleeves and my approach is all right, what's a creative way through this? And whether it's a challenge or dinner with my family, right? So I create, you know, Johnny, you mentioned rituals. I create tons of rituals all the time because they make life better. They make life more worth living. So, you know, on Mondays as a family, we do a picnic. You know what that means? I live in Boston. So in the winter, it's like super cold. I'm not talking about going outside. A picnic means Everyone finds something in the fridge that we can eat, and then we sit on the floor in our living room, we put out a blanket, and we watch a show and eat. It's a picnic because we don't usually watch TV. Like, you're both smiling. I'm smiling. I love that little tradition. I came up with it because I was realized I can't cook every night, so it was a creative solution. So I think that's my X factor is the creativity, not just with what I create in my work and my art, but just kind of how I live every day. I love that. And your, your children are certainly going to remember that for the rest of their lives. And in fact, they're probably going to implement that into their own lives because it, it, it has that, that specialness that, that was going to stay with them for, for a very long time, if not ever. Yeah. My daughter, my daughter, I have one child, my daughter is 17 and, uh, yeah, it's kind of amazing. You know, she, my, both of my books, including this book, are dedicated to her because in a way she's my biggest light and, you know, kids are mirrors. And so, Whenever I want to not practice some of what I'm teaching, she's a really good reminder because I see the impact it has on her. The question I was going to, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to ask you guys, I'm going to ask you guys a question. It's a similar question. So I like to ask people to complete this sentence. I'm an awesome human because, and actually with a spin, like today, I'm an awesome human because. Because I'm a great listener and I really love the way you described it. And I think it, it fits me to a T. Um, I usually use the listening bit. However, today I will go with, it takes a lot for me not to get back up. So I will just keep messing with things and I'm very persistent in that. And that persistence has allowed me to do uh, all the great things that I, that I get to do and all the great people that I have in my life. That's awesome. Well, thank you. And my invitation to everyone listening is what if that became part of your daily practice? What if you ask yourself, finish the sentence at the end of the day, today I'm an awesome human because, and I, I think it's so, you know, it's a great note to end on, like counter to our self-criticism. When we begin to see the good in ourselves, the uniqueness in ourselves, it actually helps us to bring that out more and makes us more persistent and resilient, but also we can see it in others more because the way we treat others is rooted in how we treat ourselves. So that's my invitation. What if at the end of the day, together with all the other things we talked about, you asked yourself, today I'm an awesome human because. Perfect way to end it. Where can our audience find out more about the Awesome Human Project and everything that you're working on? 
nataliekogan.com. All the stuff is there, including my art, which is ah, scary to say. Like I said, you know, I'm practicing what I'm teaching. This is a huge moment for me. I'm working on my first NFT art collection. You know, this is all very new for me, but I say that because I, uh, it's really important for me to practice what I'm, what I'm teaching. So nataliekogan.com for all the awesome human project stuff, including awesome humans, NFTs soon. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you. Are you an executive, professional, or entrepreneur ready to reach the next level? You know that in order to unlock your potential, it comes down to who you know and how you show up. And if that's the case, then join us, the Art of Charm team, and hundreds of other people just like you who are experiencing breakthrough conversations, supercharging their confidence, and growing an incredible network inside of our X Factor Accelerator. The X-Factor Accelerator is where high-achieving, like-minded people meet, strategize, and unlock their hidden X-Factor to make the most out of life's opportunities. That's right, Johnny. Weekly coaching and implementation sessions to level up your communication skills, master your mindset, and overcome any obstacle in your way. Join our network and unlock your X-Factor to become extraordinary. Are you ready to win at love, work, and life in 2022? Imagine what you can accomplish with coaching and mentorship with the Art of Charm. What are you waiting for? Join us today at unlockyourxfactor.com. That's unlockyourxfactor.com. Johnny, it was such a joy talking to Natalie, and I felt like she knew exactly what we were going through. Understanding that high achieving comes with the danger of burnout, and being honest with yourself is step one. I certainly enjoy this episode as well. And isn't it kind of funny how an awesome human sounds a lot like someone who's tapped into their X Factor? That's right, Johnny. And this week's shout out goes to none other than our X Factor member, Eric, who's been asked to speak at a renewable energy conference. In fact, he's super stoked because he just finished our public speaking track inside of the X Factor Accelerator, and he finally has a chance to test out his stage presence. Way to go, Eric. We're excited to see your presentation. And we're waiting for you to unlock your X Factor with us in the X Factor Accelerator. Join us at unlockyourxfactor.com. All right, we're out of here. A big thank you to the Art of Charm producers, Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. Have an epic week. Yeah, I remember you. It was-